Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to talk about compassion and choices and the medical aid in dying bill. Now this bill was passed a couple of years ago and we're going to talk about how COVID changed some of the access issues and what are some of the challenges that we may have to take a look at with the current legislation that's passed and how could we make it even better. I have Samantha Trout in the studio. She is the Senior Campaign Director for Compassion and Choices in all of California and Hawaii. And we are talking about medical aid in dying, what's happened so far, and where do we go from here. So thank you for joining me in the studio today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kozak. I am happy to have you back. We had you on a few years ago, and since then, some changes have happened. The medical aid in dying bill has been passed. We've had a couple of years of experience already. And then there was COVID, and that's changed the world, as it still is in the process of doing. So let's talk about what's happened so far. You know, Hawaii passed this legislation wanting to give people the option, should they choose, of using medical aid in dying. What is our current policy on how to utilize that resource? Well, the good news is, is that the law is working well for terminally ill people who are able to access it. And it's interesting, you know, there were actually more prescriptions written in 2020 than in 2019. In 2019, there were about 24 prescriptions written. And in 2020, there were 37. And I definitely think COVID made it more difficult to access the law. But what's interesting is, is that, you know, people are terrified of death. They don't want to talk about death. And so they don't prepare for death. But when COVID hit, it was a rude awakening. And for the first time, I think people were really forced to start thinking about end of life, having those difficult but extremely important conversations. And I think it actually helped more people be able to access the law because they started thinking about it early, which is key. You know, to access medical aid in dying, it's a 13-step process. On average, it takes around 40 days to get through all of it, um, and often quite longer. You know, John Radcliffe, who's the one who really spearheaded passing this legislation, it took him 100 days to access the law. And I can't think of anyone who would have a better network to get through the process than John Radcliffe. You would think, right. You would think. And John actually last year peacefully ended his suffering on his terms using medical aid and dying. And we we miss him so much. And, you know, John didn't want to die, but he didn't want to suffer at the end of life. And he wanted to be able to go on his terms. And that's what this law afforded him. Well, you know, you bring up a really good point, which is one of the other unseen effects of COVID has been the direct acknowledgement that things can happen. Suddenly diagnoses can occur Who predicted a worldwide pandemic? Mm. I got to tell you, I didn't. And, you know, when you get diagnoses that are terminal, that can turn your world upside down. Mm -hmm. And when we saw the whole world flip upside down from a virus, I think it maybe made all of us realize that, you know, this is this is a possibility. Life is precious. We never know how things are going to change. And if you get a terminal diagnosis and you know it may be associated with significant suffering, you may want to at least have the power and control to choose 
when things get bad enough, how you want to handle that. So I definitely think that the option needs to be available. It's not... It's not something that everyone has to choose, but giving people who want to that opportunity. You know, I've always been I've always been for choice. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Now, you said a 13 step process, and that just sounds like a lot of steps. So I know patients have asked me, are you familiar with it? And I said, you know, I'm pretty familiar with it. And I looked at the steps and I went. I am nowhere near as familiar with it as I thought I was going to be. So describe for me some of those steps. Certainly we don't have to go through each 13 step. We'd be here all night. (laughs) But what are some of the general steps and where do we see the biggest problem with the timing? Sure. And, you know, we actually think the 13 steps are important. You know, it's important to have these safeguards. They've it's all modeled after Oregon's law, which was passed in the 90s. Um, And we have data from over 50 years of combined data in all the states. Now there's 10 states in Washington, D.C. all have similar medical aid and dying laws. So, you know, in order to access the medication, you have to have two different doctors confirm your eligibility. And in order to be eligible, you have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. You know, again, these are people who are dying imminently. They don't want to die but they don't have any other choice and they don't want to suffer at the end of life. You have to be mentally capable of making medical decisions. That means you aren't you don't have Alzheimer's, you don't have advanced dementia. You have to be able to advocate for yourself over and over and over again. So you also have to be able to ingest the medication yourself. And there are ALS patients who choose medical aid in dying. So you can, if you have a feeding tube, as long as the patient themselves is able to ingest the medication by pushing the plunger, um, that that counts. It's, a, it's a, as long as they're bringing the medication in themselves. And then you have to be an adult and a resident of Hawaii. So you have to have, like I said, two different doctors confirm your diagnosis. You end up having three different doctor appointments. And you have a written request signed by two different qualified witnesses to show there's no coercion happening. Um, But, you know, one of the most challenging parts of the process is a mandatory minimum 20-day waiting period between the two oral requests to one of the, to the one who will ultimately be the prescribing physicians. Now, Hawaii has by far the longest mandatory minimum waiting period. And let me be clear, this is just between the two oral requests. It's definitely going to take longer than 20 days to get through the whole process. But we have data now from Hawaii Pacific Health and Kaiser Hawaii. They found about 20 to 30 percent of their eligible terminally ill patients who desperately want this option die during that mandatory minimum waiting period in exactly the way they didn't want. And you know, I think it's similar to hospice enrollment. People wait until the very last minute to enroll in hospice. They don't get to enjoy its full benefits because they don't want to, you know, they're, they're trying not to die, right? So by the time they make the decision to go through this process, there's not enough time. And even though it's been two and a half years since the law went into effect, we still get calls almost every other week from patients who are having problems accessing the law. And I also wanted to mention, you know, most other states have either a 15-day minimum waiting period or New Mexico actually has a two-day minimum waiting period. And California is close to passing 
um, an amendment to their law for two days as well. Because we found that the, that waiting period, it's not a safeguard. It's just a suffering period. Patients who want this have thought about it. They don't need 20 days to you know think about whether or not they want it. And really, you know, just having the prescription has a huge palliative effect for people. And we know a lot of people who get the prescription don't even take the medication. But just having the prescription gives them a huge sense of relief to know it's there so they don't have to suffer if they don't want to when the end comes. Having the choice, having the option, and having the comfort of the prescription. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Samantha Trout of Compassion and Choices and talk about some of the other parameters of the Hawaii law and how that has been changed by COVID a little bit and where we go next. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we are talking about medical aid in dying, the Hawaii experience thus far. Samantha Trout is in the studio. She is the Senior Campaign Director for Compassion and Choices in all of California and Hawaii, and we are talking today about what the effects have been on this law thus far and where we where we go in the future. So for, you mentioned that in 2019, there were 24 prescriptions written. In 2020, 37 prescriptions written. And that would just be that comfort that you mentioned. Somebody has the opportunity to have a prescription available. Not every one of those prescriptions is filled. And we mentioned a couple of the 13 steps that are required to take place to make sure that someone truly has a terminal illness. They also have more than one physician certify that. Do we still require psychiatric consultation and clearance? Yes, yes. So a patient actually goes through three mental health assessments, um, two by each of the doctors who have to evaluate them, and then a third mandatory one by a psychologist, psychiatrist, or licensed care social worker. And Hawaii is actually the only state that mandates that third mental health assessment. So it really is the most difficult law to get through. Um, But actually, you know, uh, the Hawaii Psychological Association and others have really stepped up and made it as easy as possible to um, to assess patients and have that component take place. Um, But it's still, you know, it's still a third step. And I, I really like Dr. Brian Goodyear. He's done, I think, over 30 or 40 Um, mental health assessments for Kaiser. And we've done a series of clinical webinars for medical providers. So I've heard him speak and he's presented and, you know, he'll say it's rarely needed that you can tell pretty easily if the patient, you know, the doctors have the capacity to tell if the, the patient has the mental capacity to understand what they're doing and also to make sure that the patient isn't suffering from depression that hasn't been treated. Which is a very important point. You know, you want to make sure that somebody is doing this because they truly do have an understanding of the consequences, but also that they have that terminal diagnosis that you mentioned. And as you also suggested, they have to be able to self-administer. So, you know, these are all things that are safeguards. And they also have to be six months or less to live. So, again, these are people who are imminently dying. And what we found is most people don't start the process until maybe a week or two before the end of their life because they've tried everything 
everything else and they wait till the very last minute because they don't, you know, most people have no idea it's so complicated. And I, I got to tell you, we've heard some really heartbreaking stories about people who violently ended their lives because they couldn't access the option. And it brings to mind, you mentioned the comparison to hospice earlier, that folks who often enter hospice, I know the average is that most people who, although they have up to six months of benefits, the usual average time is, you know, somewhere between uh, 10 days and two weeks when they enroll in hospice with with unfortunately them passing. So mm-hmm. if somebody were to be in this situation, they don't have to wait to access the medical aid in dying, even if they don't have an imminent plan to say, okay, I've decided September 1, they could start this process earlier. You mentioned that 20 days of of waiting that we have in Hawaii that is not the same as other states. So if there is still that mandate for 20 days, it's starting the process early, mm-hmm. never a problem. And you could start the process and then you could stop the process. If at any point you say, you know what, I've changed my mind, Absolutely. that is always your prerogative. Yeah. And at any time, you know, it, it's interesting, all of the states, and as I said, there's 10 states in Washington, D.C., all have similar laws. We see the same statistic in all the states that about one third of patients who go through the whole process and get their prescription never actually take the medication. And, um, you know, I, I think about these stories. There's one man who every day would ask his daughter to see the medication and he would say, OK, Today is not the day, but he had to see it to know that it was there. And actually, when he went through the mandatory minimum waiting period, he was so stressed out and anxious. He didn't know if he was going to make it. He never took the medication. And his daughter said that having it gave him so much life for his final week of, of being, you know, here on earth. And they're so grateful that he had it. And they're grateful they, that he never had to take it. Because, again, these are people who do not want to die they just don't want to suffer. Absolutely. And I think none of us truly towards the end of life want to go through that. Any experience of suffering, if at all possible. You know, I've seen peaceful death in the hospital during residency and at various times. I've seen what it's like when someone passes away without any pain or discomfort that we can visibly see. Mm -hmm. And I've also seen when that hasn't been the case. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely a difference. And we would want for ourselves or our loved ones peaceful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't imagine any other way. So if this is a way that we can provide that for someone who unfortunately has a diagnosis that puts them in this terminal condition, you know, I know that deep down people want to experience their end of life in a peaceful manner. I know that's definitely something that, that I would, again, I would want for, for myself. So... With that being said, it sounds like there are some ways that we could modify or adjust what we do right now to help ourselves to make sure that we can figure out what works best for Hawaii as time goes on. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are those steps? What are the unique things that we could take a look at? And how has COVID changed things and in some ways kind of helped us? We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Samantha Trad. She is the Senior Campaign Director of Compassion and Choices in all of California and Hawaii, and we're talking about medical aid in dying. And right before the break, we talked about how COVID may have helped and hurt things. You know, one of the things that I think COVID did transform for everybody is the adoption of telemedicine Mm -hmm. and doing things in a different format than we ever did. Has that helped the medical aid in dying utilization in some way? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there are doctors who have, and as well as mental health specialists, who've used telehealth to support their patients, which has been wonderful. Um, But I think also, you know, we've done a lot of clinical webinars, peer-to-peer webinars with California doctors, <coughs> and that's that's always drink of water? that's always something that uh that <coughs> you know when we have folks who happen to be in another state it always makes it difficult it's one of those difficulties that i think you know particularly with peer to peer reviews doctors don't have a lot of time it always becomes right. difficult in in clinical situations and you know i always worry about do I have enough time to attend the, late, the latest webinar? Do I know the latest? So it is one of those things that I think it's great to have the offering. I love the idea that telemedicine has enabled me to attend conferences during lunchtime yeah. when I normally would, would not be able to leave my office. So it sounds well, like that's happened as well. Yeah, and we've been able to reach. We've trained over 200 doctors here in Hawaii, and it's been wonderful. We've we've done Train the Trainer, so now there are Hawaii doctors training and mentoring other doctors. And it's, you know, it's really important. You know, I talked about how people don't want to suffer at the end of life. And there's some doctors who think, well, then just give them morphine. But the thing is, is that not everybody wants morphine. Some people want to have control. They want to be in their right mind. They don't want to be filled with medication. And some people do, right? It's all about choice and having the end of life experience that you want, that you're, you know, that you're able to qualify for. Um, But also sometimes palliative medicine, which is wonderful and can help you at any stage of life, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always do what the patient wants. And so again, that's why it's so important to have these options. Well, and again, I love the idea of Now I could go to a webinar with one of my local Hawaii docs who could be a peer trainer to me to explain to me how this could take place, go through those steps. Mm -hmm. And then also they can help us with the patients and some of their interactions and difficulties with accessing the law. But then also just giving everybody just a sense of comfort of, you know, whenever I hear somebody said, I've done that before, I'll show you. I always feel better. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of giving, again, you said options. It, It doesn't all have to be pain medicine, but for some people it could be. It just depends on what their comfort level is and what makes the most sense for them. So telemedicine has helped us. How has COVID made it more difficult? Well, I, you know, I think that we, we haven't been able to physically travel and talk to people. So while it's wonderful and easier in so many ways to meet people on Zoom, there's something different about meeting with people in person. And, you know, there's still so many doctors who see death as failure. And of course, it is not failure. But until they have that conversation, often with another doctor or with their patients, you know, I often think about Dr. Palalai, um, who's, you know, told the story of how at first he didn't support medical aid in dying, but then he had a patient who said, I, you know, you've been my doctor for forever. I want you to do it. And so he supported her. She said she wanted him there when she took the medication on Easter Sunday. And, you know, he's Catholic. He wasn't sure. And he went there. And he said it was one of the most important moments of his life. It was just such an incredible 
experience to be there when his patient took her medication on Easter Sunday. And he said when he was driving home, you know, he felt God telling him that he had done the right thing. And, you know, you can't, that doesn't work over telemedicine. And, you know, like I said, we still get calls every other week. And so we're doing our best to support, you know, hospices and especially the neighbor islands where there's such a lack of access there. And the growing physician shortage is problematic for all of medicine, including end of life. And, you know, especially when doctors don't understand sometimes that death is not failure, right? But that being able to support your patient in the end of life experience they want is really so important to be able to do. Um, so, you know, we're we're hopeful that we can try to overcome some of these access issues. The Hawaii Department of Health has again recommended to the legislature that um, qualified advanced practice registered nurses with prescriptive authority be able to support patients in medical aid and dying because right now they can't, even though it's actually within their scope of practice. You know, nurse practitioners um, can diagnose terminal illness. They can um, give a prognosis of six months or less, and they can write prescriptions for controlled two substances. So they already are trained to do everything that you need to know how to do to support a patient in medical aid and dying, you know. And then the Department of Health also recommends that um, something needs to be done about that mandatory minimum waiting period because it's just it's just too long. It doesn't it doesn't it's not a safeguard. You know, it doesn't change anything. A patient has made up their mind. They know we already know a third of patients never even take the medication after they get it. So it's not necessary. It's just a long suffering period. And often, you know, it's taken a patient a long time just to find a doctor. So we encourage people if this is something you think is important to you talk to your doctor today. You know, you don't have to wait until you're sick. Make sure your doctor will support you if you think there's a 1% chance you might want this. I've talked to my doctor. I'm not terminally ill, but I told him, I said, you know, if I were to become terminally ill, would you support me? And he had never had anyone ask him about it. He didn't know about the law. He, you know, he was... (laughs) You were the perfect patient for him that day. (laughs) I knew a little too much about the law. (laughs) But, you know, he said, yes, he he had to think about it. And he was a younger doctor. And we are finding younger doctors tend to be more supportive, but not always. And, you know, there are older doctors who are extremely supportive, too. But he said, yes. And so I was was glad because it's, you know, it's hard to find a doctor when you're healthy, but it's 10 times as hard when you're sick. And you should also know that um, Catholic healthcare systems and hospices, as well as Adventist ones, don't let their doctors practice. So even if the doctor wanted to, they don't let them. And um, it's really important to talk to your doctor. If they do say no, find out why. Are they allowed to practice? Do they not understand what the law is? You know, this is not euthanasia, right? We don't use the term assisted suicide because it's it's hurtful and offensive to terminally ill dying people who use this law. They don't want to die, right? Like I've said over and over, they do not want to die, but they don't have any other choice. So now they're working on figuring out how they want to die. They want a little bit of control over something they don't have any control over. Well, you're right. There is that general aura when you hear about suicide or euthanasia that brings up potentially some thoughts about it that don't don't, don't apply here. You know, you mentioned that... There are some folks who might not be able to provide that prescription, but it, it brings it brings up a couple of questions that I've had patients ask me, which I think bear discussion. One of them is they have to choose between hospice or medical aid in dying. Now, oh, that's no. not the case. In fact, I think the studies that we talked about, was about probably about two years ago, mm-hmm. showed that 80 or more percent of the people who 
look at medical aid and dying, also enroll in hospice. So yeah. you can do both. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen some studies actually that when states pass aid and dying laws, hospice enrollment goes up. And we encourage everyone to enroll in hospice. It's a wonderful thing, but you know, it's not a this or that, right? It's and. It's ice cream and cake. Yes. Right, absolutely. You can do both. Yes. Now, you could also potentially enroll in medical aid and dying if you're still treating your condition and you're not in hospice, if you still have a six-month or less prognosis. Right. So that could also be the case. You don't have to stop your treatments, but if your doctor certifies that this is really just palliative treatment and we don't expect, unfortunately, you to be here in six months, you don't have to do hospice. You could still do medical aid in dying. Right. And it could be either or. It could be and. Yeah. You don't have to choi- choose yeah. One or the other. And hospice, you know, hospice is wonderful and we encourage people to enroll in hospice. But you should know that, you know, most hospices still don't let their doctors practice medical aid in dying. And we're working on that because there's there's no need. They're, they can they can support patients. But we get calls often from hospices because they have patients who, who are looking for a doctor and their doctors can't support them. So, you know, we're happy to help right now. But we don't want to be that point for forever, right? We want to make sure that anyone is able to find it without having to know to come to us. Because then it becomes, it really, and it really can be about privilege. You know, if you know where to go, if you know how to advocate for yourself, if you have the agency to work the system, you can access the law. But then there's everybody else who, you know, they might be suffering, they might be dying, and they don't know. They don't know how to get through it. And and that's wrong. It's not fair. You know, this law is for all terminally ill people here in Hawaii, um, not just the few who know how to how to work the system. So things we could do to equalize that would yeah. be education. Yes. As you mentioned, it could also be expanding the scope of who can participate in this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, advanced practicing registered nurses, APRNs that have within their scope of practice this diagnosis capability already and the writing of controlled substances. So expanding that access would be one thing we could look at. You mentioned decreasing the number of waiting days, that 20-day period, mm-hmm. where that, you know, if it only took somebody from step one to step 13, 20 days, that that sounds still like a difficult long time, but it's a lot less than 100 days that right. you mentioned it took poor John Radcliffe to go from step one to step 13. So looking at that 20 days with a little bit more scrutiny to decide, should we mirror what some of the other states have done by decreasing that? Are there other things? I know telemedicine utilization can really help with access, particularly yeah. for neighbor islands here in Hawaii, but also even if you just have difficulty finding a provider or getting in to see them mm-hmm. in a timely fashion. Any other thoughts on where we should go moving forward to try and expand the fair, equitable access of this to those who want to utilize it? I think not being so afraid of death. You know, it's it's going to happen to all of us. I you know I can't cite my sources, unfortunately, but all everything I've read, um, I'm pretty sure there's a hundred percent mortality rate. So I think we're all going to die. You know, life is a terminal <laughs> condition in and of itself. Yeah, very true. Okay, but talking about it won't kill you, which is the good thing, right? And finding a way to talk to your loved ones about it. it. It is so hard. And, you know, there there's the cultural aspect of it. You know, different cultures, different families have different ways. I grew up in a family where we talked about death all the time. My mom was terminally ill. My grandfather, I remember when I was 10, bought us all cemetery plots for Christmas. <laughs> I mean, we were a little wow. extreme on the other side. I would think so. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's better than probably coal in your stocking. But uh <laughs> 
That's an interesting present, Grandpa. It will be used someday. That is something to say. <laughs> okay. But really, it's, I, I actually think it can, it can be helpful. You know, I have friends ask me, isn't it depressing doing this work? Like, why do you do this work? And I actually find that it helps me appreciate life so much more. You know, I, I do talk to these people of these heart-wrenching stories about a loved one who's had a terrible death. And it just makes me so thankful every day for every little thing that I have. And, you know, when I start to get upset about something small and stupid, I have to remember this is this is our one life, right? And, you know, I, I don't have to be upset about something that's just, you know, it's no big deal. I'm not going to remember in a week or a month. And it's okay to, to think about death and talk about it and prepare for it. Well, and you've helped us talk about it today. So I do want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise with us today. And Compassion and Choices has a website. Yes. What Compassionandchoices.org slash Hawaii. Um, I encourage you all to go to our Hawaii page. We have a petition we would love to have you sign to help improve the law um, and get involved. We have so many free resources. We have a little booklet on how to get through those 13 steps um, if you're interested. So please go to our website. All right. Well, I want to thank Samantha Trad, Senior Campaign Director, Compassion and Choices in all of California and Hawaii, for being on the show today. If you'd like to hear us this again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org and follow the links. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then.